We're turning once again in the Lord's Word to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, while you're turning, give the sound man a heads up. I'm not sure the batters were changed in this pack. So, okay. 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll break in at verse 12. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Let's all hear God's inspired, infallible, and holy word. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. And God will add his own blessing to the reading of that word for his name's sake. Let's take a moment and ask the Lord for his help in the preaching and hearing of his word. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, we're reminded of the parable of the Lord when he spoke of the sower who was to go and sow seed. Certainly this is an occasion when the sower is about to sow the seed of thy word. We pray our God it would fall upon good ground. It will be understood, and as it was in the parable, uh, those that understood the word, believed the word, received it, to them was given much fruit. So may there be much fruit born as a result of the sowing and the receiving of the word this day into hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. As we return to this section of 1 Peter 4, I'm reminded that to live a Christian life is to live a life that is confrontational to the world. I don't mean that a Christian is supposed to be aggressive and argumentative in his attitude toward the world, always looking for a debate or causing a dispute regarding the Christian faith. Believers with that kind of attitude and approach to the world do far more harm than good 
to the cause of Jesus Christ. But what I'm saying is that a Christian who simply lives as a Christian should live in this world is going to live a life that is confrontational to the lost. A godly life, you see, a godly life calls out the world. It exposes sin. And as it exposes sin, a godly life is automatically condemning sin. That, that Christian life lived out, that, that life without saying one word tells lost sinners that they aren't living right. That God is not pleased with how they're living. And the world doesn't like that. It doesn't like being called out. It doesn't like its sin being exposed. It doesn't like the things of darkness brought to light. Not only is it a matter of that it doesn't like it, it actually hates it. It confronts them with how they're living. That's the very reason that Paul told Timothy that all that will, the word will means want or desire, all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. All of them. It doesn't mean that all that desire to live godly are going to be thrown into prison or tortured for their faith. There are plenty of godly people who have never suffered any kind of serious persecution like that because they're Christian. But there are a thousand and one different ways that Satan, the one who's behind all of the persecution of the world, oppresses them. All kinds of ways. What Paul is saying is that all who will live godly are going to have the world for their enemy in some way, shape, or form. The devil works 24-7, in case you didn't know, in order to disturb the peace and the joy and the usefulness of the Lord's people. He's always after that. He wants that destroyed. Doesn't want you to be happy. Doesn't want you calm of heart. Doesn't want you being used by God. He's looking to destroy that. And that's how it's going to be. Every day of your life until Christ returns or the Lord takes you home. Your life lived as a Christian is confrontational to this world. The church will never be completely at peace and free from persecution until one of those two events take place. My point is that the Christian life, when it is being lived out as it should be before the world, it is going to be one that creates conflict. You don't have to try to do anything. You just live it and it's going to create conflict. 
whether or not you like conflict, whether or not you like confrontation is completely beside the point. Just, just living as a Christian should live brings you into direct opposition to the world and all that goes with that. In this country, for instance, we are seeing develop before our very eyes humanism and atheism becoming more and more the aggressive persecutors of the church. It's being played out. Just, just watch the news. Humanism. It's all about man being God. And atheism, denying his existence. The attacks are growing and will continue to grow. What we need to know is how, as Christians, we should respond to all this. Sitting here in a comfortable building on a Sunday morning, it might seem like that's a thousand miles away because we're not going through what other Christians are going through in the world as they suffer severe persecution. But it's only a matter of time as you see the growing animosity of this world against the Lord. Things are not going to wax better and better. They're going to wax worse and worse. The persecution is going to increase. You might well be dead and gone before it reaches a level like that of which these believers were facing. But your children will be around to face it. And I know your grandchildren will. What should you tell them? Are you supposed to dance around it and not really mention it and hope they just do okay and pray for them? Well, that's not what the Lord would have us to do. We're looking at this, what I've called a Christian directory for Christians who are suffering. And suffering for the sheer fact that they are Christians. Peter's writing to saints who are suffering fiery trials of all sorts, especially for their Christian faith. And he's, he, he's giving them directions on how to face it. These, these are directions, hence the directory, a list of directions. They're not suggestions that are being made that you can take or leave as you wish. They are spirit-inspired directions that God has given to His people in any day, any place, any situation where they are suffering these, these fiery trials. So far we've seen that Peter has told them in the first place to expect them. Surprise at the fiery trial is not a response <clears throat> that the, Lord's, the Lord wants His people to have, but expectation. So verse 12, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is the tribe. It's not odd. You should expect it. We saw last week that not only should they expect them, but the second direction was the Lord wants you to rejoice in them. Verse 13, but rejoice. 
as you face these fiery trials. And boy, were they fiery. Rejoice. Inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's sufferings, we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's a privilege to do that. It's a badge of honor to suffer as Jesus suffered in some way. And if we share in his sufferings, we're also, Peter says, going to share in his glory when it's all over and done. And so we should not only rejoice, but we look forward to the day when he will be exceeding glad with exceeding joy. We'll be ecstatic. And so it won't be so hard when you look at it like that. Yeah, there's pain and hurt and sorrow now, but it's not going to end like this. I know how it's going to end. This is nothing in comparison to what's coming. Certainly that would keep us out of the depths of despondency. Because when he says rejoice, as I pointed out, he's really saying, don't get depressed about it. Don't get down and discouraged because of the fiery trials. If we just believed what we know in our heads, it always comes down to this matter of living by faith, doesn't it? Always comes down to that living by faith. We can understand easily enough that the Christian should really expect these troubles that come to them. But when it comes with this matter of rejoicing in the midst of those fiery trials, it's not so easy. Because the natural response is to become discouraged and down and depressed about it all. But what's the key? Peter says, the spirit of glory and of God resteth on you. There you are in the midst of the suffering, but the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And it's always and only by the spirit that we walk by faith that we find this ability to not just know these promises, but to actually believe them and to rest upon them. That's what's needed when you're in the midst of the fiery trial. It's the trusting that's so critical. It's the leaning upon them, the depending upon them, not just believing that they're true, but casting your whole soul upon them. That's what brings the peace and restores the joy that's been lost. But there are two more directions given to Christians who are suffering at the hands of Satan and the world simply because they belong to Christ. When it comes to suffering, these fiery trials, these persecutions, these attacks of Satan and the world, we should expect them, we should rejoice in them, and thirdly, we should examine them. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for God resteth upon you. The Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Verse 15, 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. What in the world is all of that about? Murder? Don't suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody. Why, why is that being introduced in this instruction, this direction, how to respond to the suffering? How does it fit into this picture of suffering just because you're Christians? What Peter is telling them to do is to examine their suffering and ask themselves the question, why am I suffering? And the reason for asking the why is because it could well be a case that there is suffering, but it's not because you're a Christian. But that's the thinking. The apostle is saying, in essence, make sure that you're suffering for righteousness' sake. Not because of sin. Make sure that you're suffering for well-doing, not for evil-doing. You need to examine them. And that's a very clear direction that we are to take on board when we, are, when we find ourselves in the midst of this fiery trial. The persecution, the attacks. If you and I suffer as a Christian... Simply he's saying because of godly living, because we're obeying God's word, then Peter says, let him not be ashamed. I'll say more about that in a moment or two. I want to speak first to what Peter speaks first to, and that is suffering for the wrong reasons. You've you got to find that one out, suffering for the wrong reasons. He lists four specific types of sinners in verse 15, and he wanted them to make sure that they weren't being persecuted by the world because they fell into one of these categories. That the trouble wasn't coming into their lives because they were one of these four individuals. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody in men's matters. It might seem strange, you know, at first, at first glance that Peter would speak to Christians under these terms. He's writing to churches. Make sure that none of you are suffering because you've murdered. Because you've stolen. Because you're an evildoer. Yes. The apostles warned Christians in their epistles against all kinds of sins. Didn't Paul say, let him that stole steal no more? Stop it. Didn't Paul deal with ongoing fornication in the church of Corinth among Christians? Fornication? It was a way of life to them. He had to call it out. Warn them. Here's what you're doing. It's, it's like a harlot. 
To use the words of an old Scottish expositor, except Christians employ Christ's Spirit to apply that virtue which He hath purchased by His death, for the changing of their nature and mortifying of the love of sin in their hearts, they will readily break out in those abominations for which even heathens would justly put them to suffer. For this direction of the apostles does not does import that except Christians did watch and pray and make use of Christ's death for mortification of sin within them, they were in hazard to break out in the sins here mentioned, and so be put to suffer as murderers, thieves, evildoers, and busybodies in other men's matters. Hmm. Yeah. Christians had to be warned about these things. Now, if, if they were suffering at the hands of men because of these kinds of sins, then they had every reason to be ashamed of them. And they should expect to be treated shamefully. So Peter is saying, if you murder someone and you're in prison because you've taken someone's life and you're going to be executed for it, don't complain that you're suffering just because you're a Christian. If, if you've been caught stealing and you're suffering at the hands of godless courts, pagan courts, don't claim that they're out to get you. Because you're a Christian. The same would apply to the evildoer. A word that would actually cover all kinds of lawbreakers. Man's laws and God's laws. Evildoers. And the fourth term Peter uses is a busy body in other men's matters. Suffering. Suffering for being a busy body in other men's matters. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And it is only one word. Busy body and other men's matters is only one word in the Greek. It's made up of two terms. The first term speaks of something that belongs to another. And the second term is episkopos. You might hear the word episcopal in that. And that word episkopos means overseer or bishop. An overseer in something that doesn't belong to you. It's not your business. But you're usurping an authority that's not been given you. You're meddling. Put all that together and what Peter is referring to is someone who is... It's not just that they're nosy. Because busybodies are nosy. They want to know everybody else's business. He's not just talking about that. And he's not just talking about someone whom we would call a gossip. Who is nosy and wants to find out everybody else's business so they can tell everybody else everybody else's business. They, they, that there's a meddling here. 
this term would include all of that, but it, it means more. These Christians, uh, he, he's suggesting that they were not going to be thrown in a dungeon just because they were busybodies or gossips. They've been around as long as the world's been around, and the persecution wasn't going to come because of that. You see, what Peter's describing is someone who is a troublemaker, a troublesome meddler, one who pries into the affairs of others, who acts like an overseer, who usurps authority that he doesn't have, all the while creating trouble. It's much more serious than just a, a little busybody, an old gossip. I believe that Peter is referring to the Christian who would, for instance, go against what God said earlier in the chapter 2, and he would not submit to the king. He would not submit to those who had authority over him. And he would resist him, and he would rebel against the authorities ordained by God. A Christian revolutionary, so to speak. trying to impose Christianity on an ungodly culture through meddling in affairs that he has no right to meddle in. You can understand why this kind of busybody would lead to suffering at the hands of the law. So, Peter says to these Christians who are suffering, you make sure you don't belong to this group. You are Christians. You are Christians who are living in a non-Christian culture. Therefore, you just go about your business. Go to your jobs. Do your work. You lead a quiet and holy life. Yes, preach the gospel to the lost. Exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Tell them what great things God has done for you. But don't try to overthrow or overturn the culture. Don't be a meddling agitator. You'll suffer for it. And you should be ashamed of it. So the point of application is that we must always, always be clear on the reason why we're being persecuted at any level. Why we're mocked by the world why we're rejected by the lost, why they don't really have, wouldn't give us the time of day. We need to make sure we're on good ground for that rejection and that mocking. It's because of godly living, not because of ungodly living. 
if it's because of behavior that is really contrary to the Lord's word and the Lord's will, then we should be ashamed of it. The last thing we need to do is to deceive ourselves into thinking, well, I'm just mocked and I'm scorned and I'm rejected and I'm persecuted because I'm a Christian when the fact is, no, 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 you just haven't been living a godly life. That's the problem. You've said things, you've done things that have nothing to do with being bold for Christ. But Peter goes on to tell them in verse 16 that if you're suffering, if you're suffering as a Christian, never be ashamed of how people treat you. You see, the punishment meted out to criminals in, in Peter's day, much, much more so than in our... In fact, they're, they're trying to go the opposite direction in our day. But when the punishment was meted out in, in these days, it was designed, deliberately designed, to bring as much disgrace and shame upon the one committing the crimes as could be possible. They wanted to shame them. That's why the cross. That's why the being beaten with rods. Put on public display to shame them. And it came at the hands for the Christians, at the hands of the Jews and pagans who looked upon Christianity with total abhorrence and contempt. And so you'll find the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica that they had been shamefully treated when they came to Philippi. The actual English word is entreated, but it's really shamefully treated. They dishonored us. They disgraced us. Christians, he says, were treated as, listen to him, the filth of the world and the off-scouring of all things. The off-scouring. The garbage you throw away that's worthless. I really don't understand that because I've never had that kind of treatment. But they did. Thought crosses my mind just perhaps, just perhaps if we were living more godly, there'd be more suffering. Doing what the Lord would want us to do, perhaps, there'd be more reproach. He speaks, Paul does, of them having to suffer cruel mockings. Everything was being done in order to make them ashamed of their faith, ashamed of Christ, ashamed of being a Christian. 
That's what the devil's after. But Peter says plainly, let him not be ashamed. No matter how they treat you, don't be ashamed. No matter how much scorn they heap upon you, dishonor, don't be ashamed. He's not to be ashamed, the child of God. He's not to be ashamed to be called a Christian. We are not to be ashamed of the gospel. We're never to be ashamed of the doctrines of God's word. No matter how out of sync they are with the world. Do you realize how powerful that temptation can be to a child of God? When the world, oh, stupid Christians. They have these stupid rules. You're not to be ashamed of any doctrine, of any commandment of the Lord. It doesn't matter what people say about you or think about. We're never to be ashamed of the Savior. who was never ashamed of us. We should never be ashamed to keep the company of other Christians. We should never be embarrassed to be among the Lord's people, no matter who's around. We should never be ashamed to do anything the Lord's Word tells us to do. It's the Lord's Word. We're Christians. And if it causes suffering of any stripe or color, then so be it. But I'm not to be ashamed over it. You see, a man should only be ashamed of that which is wrong. That which is sinful. That I'll Be as ashamed as you can be. Sin is disgraceful. Whether it's coming from a lost or a Christian doesn't make any difference. It's disgraceful. It's dishonoring. We should be ashamed. But we should never be ashamed of that which is right and true. But what should the child of God do when, when he suffers as a Christian? Let him glorify God on this behalf, Peter says. Literally, let him glorify God in this matter. Praise God. <laughs> here, here we are. We're going back now to what they're facing. Awful, awful persecution. Praise God. Praise God about what? Praise God that you're being given evidence that you are a true child of God because it's the godly who suffer persecution at the hands of the wicked because they're living godly, because they're doing right. Praise God you are being given clear evidence that you belong to His people. You're one of them. But you and I can also praise God in this matter of suffering as a Christian because of what it's going to do for us and what it's going to do for the work of God. 
You see, if I can borrow from James, because he was writing to people who are going through very similar times, he's the one that said, count it all joy, right? View it as a matter to rejoice in. Count it all joy when you fall into divers, all kinds of trials, fiery trials, persecution included, because they were being persecuted. Why? What's there to praise God about? What's there to sing about? Your, your, your spouse is taken and, and slain. Your children are taken from you. Your, 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 all your possessions are taken from you. You're mocked and scorned. And you're, you're, you're the offscouring of the earth. What's there to praise God about? What is there? But it doesn't even take that, does it? It doesn't even take that level of trouble and trial in our life to... To move us to a place where we are down in the mouth. And woe is my life. And we dive down into the depths. If somehow that these, these Christians could look at us and where we are and see us groaning about things that to them they are living a picnic these are smooth times for them they just took my children from me they hauled my husband off the jail last night They just threw my mother and father to the lions. And to those people, the Holy Spirit says, praise God. How do I do that? Well, we, 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 it's, it's that matter of, it's the mind again, stopping and thinking, the benefit this is going to have to us personally, and the benefit it's going to have to the church. Tribulation, James said, Worketh patience. When you work patience, you see endurance. Tribulations don't work apostasy in a child of God. Oh, tribulations may end up producing apostasy in one who's not a child of God. They will walk away from it all. They'll turn their back and say, I am done with this trouble. I'm done with the strife. I want no more of it. I'm going back to where it's easy. But for the child of God, tribulations produce patience, endurance. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. You will have to endure to the end. And the Lord's going to see to it that you will endure and your endurance will grow and he'll send tribulation and trouble into your life to bring that about. Praise God. If it brings more patience in your life and mine. And patience produces experience and you know, that's really about you and I going from the mental into the reality of the faith. 
a real experience of what it is to trust God in the, in the fire. That's good. Praise God for that. Who in the world wants to go, to go out into eternity with only having the theory? And I want the reality. I want to know, the, I want to know in my experience just what faith does and how it works and what it means. And this experience, James says, produces hope. The word is confidence. Confidence in God. Confidence in His Word. And that will be just the opposite of being ashamed. Boldness. Not shame. You and I... You and I should praise God when we have to suffer as Christians because it always has this tendency to promote the cause of Christ, whether it's in the world or whether it's among other believers. It, it, was, watching, it was watching the stoning of Stephen that Saul, who became Paul, could never shake, and that was used to bring him to Christ. Stephen was suffering. Boy, was he suffering as the stones went flying about his head. It bashed his brains out, and Paul saw it all. And he could never get away from it. He was kicking against the pricks of his conscience. He knew he could not die like Stephen died. Phew! And do you realize the impact that had upon the church of Jesus Christ, the salvation of Paul, the apostle? It was watching a Christian being burned at the stake, yet remaining calm and in prayer that was instrumental in bringing John Calvin to faith in Christ. He walked away saying, I could not die like that. Do we realize the impact that the salvation of John Calvin had upon the church? The more you know of Calvin, the more you know of church history, you realize he was a mighty man, a mighty instrument of God. And we're reaping the benefits of that ministry to this very day. How many believers will be in heaven because they saw a Christian looking upon his persecution, looking upon his trial as something to rejoice in and praise God about? How many? How many Christians have been greatly encouraged and strengthened in their own trial when they've seen another Christian suffer yet remain steadfast? How many? So whenever we are at a place where we're suffering some form of rejection, persecution, and scorn from the world, we need to stop and evaluate why it's happening. Is this being done to me because of sin? Or am I being 
persecuted just because I'm a Christian trying to please the Lord. If the latter, then you can say with Paul, I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds. They're calling me, they're labeling me as an evildoer even to the point of putting me in prison. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I'm not at all ashamed. Finally, in the face of suffering, this is the fourth and final direction. Pursue holiness and entrust your soul to God. Look at the last verse, verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Let them that suffer according to the will of God. You see, Peter is taking this beyond the persecutors themselves. He's getting to the original cause. This is according to the will of God. This suffering that you're facing. You see the, 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 the vats of oil, the fires, the lions, those who suffer according to the will of God. All of the suffering that God's people have ever and will ever face for being Christians has been appointed by divine providence. Peter puts everything into perspective in that statement. So since this suffering, this fiery trial is, is by God's appointment, and since there's so much danger that Christians are facing in the persecution, in the suffering... And since no one else can help them, and since he is a trustworthy, that's the word's meaning, he's a trustworthy creator. Creator. Where does creator come from? Why is that? Well, creator? Well, the creator has a plan, you see. From the very beginning, the creator has a plan. It's all worked out in the plan. And the plan is trustworthy. Because the Creator is trustworthy. He brings up the Creator who's trustworthy because of His power. If He created everything out of nothing, believe you me, He has this power that's necessary to help you in your suffering. The Creator will give you the protection. So He says, commit your soul, literally entrust your soul to him and keep doing good that's that in well doing that's what he's saying there keep doing good the word soul it's used in a way that refers not just to that uh, invisible part of man but to anything and everything that has to do with their life commit your soul commit your commit 
anything, entrust everything and anything into God's hands. Put it all into the hands of the Lord and leave it there. Just leave it there. Don't try to take it back again. You commit your soul and all that involves your soul into the hands of this trustworthy Creator. You know, it is quite simple, isn't it? It's quite simple. God is saying this, leave it all with me. Just keep doing right. They're suffering great trials. You leave it all with me. You just keep doing right. You keep pursuing holiness. You keep living the godly life. It's that word wherefore that begins verse 19 that brings me to my close. Wherefore, let them that suffer. Wherefore, so then. So then, Peter concludes that in light of what he's just said, that they are to entrust their souls to God and persevere in well-doing. And what has he just said? He informed them that the time for God's judgment upon the house of God has come. The word time more season would be the idea. This is the season for God's judgment to come. He was telling them up front that they were living in a season of God's judgment upon the house of God. I don't take this as some commentators do to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. It would, it would encompass that and all that was going to happen as a result of, of, of Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 A.D., which would be just not too far from when this letter was written. But that's not the main thrust. Judgment here, beginning at the house of God, refers to God's chastening His people, purging them, pruning the branches, disciplining the church. God has appointed times when He sends judgments upon the church to purify it, to produce more fruit. His judgments are in the earth. Bad things happen. So Peter says you need to entrust your soul to God and, and persevere in well-doing. But Peter also brings up, you see, this judgment of God that will fall upon those who obey not the gospel. And he's making the comparison here. If God sends affliction upon his people to deal with their sin, and that's what purging and pruning is all about. It's dealing with our sin. If God sends judgment to deal with our sin upon his people, what will his affliction be like upon those who are not his people? If he puts them through this, if he appoints by his own wisdom and, and, and power, he appoints these kinds of sufferings for those who are his people, what will it be like for those who are not his people and, and those who abandon him because they refuse to endure the suffering? Have not, they have not entrusted their soul to God and have given up on well-doing. Now you see his point. 
if that's what happens to those who are his people, what's it going to be like for those who are not? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear, that is, appear at God's day of judgment? The righteous, every one of them, are scarcely saved. What does that mean? Literally, saved with difficulty. Remember the Lord's comment about those who are on the broad road and narrow road? Those who are walking down the narrow road, they've gone through the straight gate. The straight word, that word means narrow. The narrow gate. And narrow is the way funny thing is, the word there is not narrow, it's difficult. Difficult is the way which leadeth unto life. It's a narrow gate, and it's a difficult way. The righteous will be saved. Christ's people will be saved, but it will be with much trouble, with many deep afflictions, with much struggling, many severe conflicts, and such is the nature of the difficulty that God is the only one who has the ability to deliver them. So if the salvation of the righteous must be accompanied by such difficulties and delivered only by the power of God, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear in the day of judgment? Well, they will appear before God lost. For the judgment of God that fell on them was a means of punishment, not of purification, not of discipline, of sanctification. And they were not saved because they did not have God as the keeper of their souls. Here's why Peter says it. The times were dangerous they were facing. Many who professed Christ walked away at this time because they didn't want to take the heat. Well, Peter says, you better stop and think. If the Lord does this to his own people, if he brings them into the affliction, it's really going to be bad for the lost. You don't want to be found among them. 
on the day of judgment, you want to be found your soul kept. So he says, wherefore, wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as a faithful creator. That would pull you up. I've committed my soul to God. Wherefore, Paul says, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. My soul's in his hands. I've left it with God. I'm just going to keep on doing right. May the Lord write that word on our souls as did upon their souls for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer, please. Let's seek the Lord together. Who oh, are God and Father, we, we are so glad today that there won't be one trial, one ounce of suffering one degree of persecution that's going to take us away from thee. Thou art the keeper of our souls. Our lives and our times are in thy hands. We pray, Lord, that we will show to this world that our God is real. We will show to them what Christians do who have a God like this in the midst of the trial. We want them to think that we're strange. Indeed we are, Lord. Save us from thinking the trials are strange. Give us this increase in the grace of faith to lean more heavily upon who thou art and upon thy word and to pursue this path of well-doing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.